0: You're listening to Reach MD XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. To quote my guest, I've seen people in every state of neurological decline, and I've seen death over and over again. And this makes me feel lucky about life every day. As I think about this, I have to admit that my appreciation for the everyday has become a well-entrenched part of me now. I probably don't need the constant reinforcement. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Greenwich, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Katrina Furlick, the first woman admitted to the neurosurgery residency program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and the author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Welcome, Dr. Furlick. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Dr. Furlick, your comment, the one I quoted in the introduction, about how you justify tolerating a job that can be very depressing is very funny. But is the work of a neurosurgeon depressing? It definitely can
1: be. And probably the thing that we deal with most often would be an elderly person in the emergency room with bleeding into the brain, you know, an intracerebral hemorrhage. That tends to be, at least in my practice now, one of the more common scenarios. And so we're dealt with not so much the surgical decisions, but almost more the, the social and ethical decisions. You know, what what is a life worth living? What does the family want? What would the patient have wanted? And it just makes you think that, you know, obviously life is finite, and depending on your religious views, you know, I don't believe there's anything after this. And so I, I really have felt fortunate to think about these issues again and again so that i able to appreciate my own life even better.
0: Your philosophical approach to life is nature-based, and this seems to help guide your thoughts about your career. What about fellow neurosurgeons who believe differently, perhaps having religious or mystical beliefs? How do you think that influences them as they operate on the brain and make those decisions about life and death?
1: Well, it's interesting. I've had a lot of conversations with neurosurgeon colleagues, and some of them are devout uh, Christians or or other religious affiliations, and I, I have incredible respect for their views. I'm not quite sure if the end result is any different. I'm not sure if their surgical decision-making is dramatically different. But I think it may change how they talk to the family, for example. It may change what they think is a life worth living, for example, as well. It's interesting when we have our M&M conferences, morbidity and mortality conferences, with the whole group group of neurosurgeons, there will be incredible differences across the spectrum as to how to handle, say, an elderly person with an intracerebral bleed. You might have one guy saying, why would we consider surgery at all? And the other guy at the other end of the spectrum will say, well, wait a minute. You think a a life in a nursing home with a weak arm and leg is worse than death? You're you're crazy. That could be a very fulfilling life. So you have people on on both ends of the spectrum, you know, partly religion-based, partly just just kind of what your personal views are about what a worthy life is. And that's that's where things get interesting, ethically and, and socially.
0: Yeah. So what guides you in making end-of-life decisions for patients who are intermittently awake but on life support or for those who appear to be awake but are not really aware?
1: Mm-hmm. Just even looking at a CAT scan, for example, in the emergency room, just even for a few seconds, you get a gut feeling as to whether this is a survivable Problem or not a survivable problem. If it's clearly not survivable and we're talking the patient will die within you know, days or even weeks, then I'm very much for letting nature take its course in most circumstances because it's just torture to put, put the family through all sorts of heroics when, when uh, it's just going to prolong the inevitable. There are obviously some cases that are on the fence, and that requires a, a lot of discussion with, with the family and in terms of really trying to lay out the reality. Of what the future looks like, and I've had patients who have looked for second opinions where I've been the second opinion, and they've said, "You know Dr. Furlick, do you really think that we should put our family birth through the surgery and and I've realized they don't have a full understanding of what the post operative course will look like they don't have a full understanding of you know the months of therapy and, and possibly not regaining consciousness and the and the infections that'll set in and all the all the problems that go along with." brain injury. But I think just being really out front and open is, is key.
0: Talk about the experience of waiting to see if patients will return to consciousness or enter a severe persistent vegetative state after a severe head injury.
1: It's an interesting phenomenon, and I'm always amazed just to watch that, even though I've seen it over and over again. It's amazing to, to round on, on a patient in the ICU one evening, and they're not conscious, and then the, the, the next morning they are. And we don't know exactly how that occurs or why that occurs, in detail, but i 'm not a religious person, but it does seem like one of the more miraculous things that we see, partly because it's it 's still somewhat mysterious, so there is some element of not knowing when someone will wake up, but as neurosurgeons, I like to say that we're we're the connoisseurs of the coma in that we do various tests on a, on a daily basis to to judge how deep somebody's coma is, you know how they respond to pain, how they respond to various stimulation. And we can kind of tell who's in a deeper coma versus lighter coma. So we have some some judges to when they might wake up.
0: When understanding consciousness is so important, why do you think so few neurosurgeons have attempted to study it?
1: Well, that's a good question. I, I talk about that in my book a bit. You know, it's it's one of those issues that hasn't really been a surgical concern because there's not much we can do, I think, to influence that. And it's been left more to the neuropsychologists and the cognitive scientists, more the PhDs as opposed to the MDs, to, to look into that question of consciousness. I think partly we haven't had the tools to study it. It was kind of a mushy topic for, for so many years. Now it's, it's gaining more in credibility, you know, consciousness research, partly with new imaging techniques, and partly now there's even some groundbreaking studies to, to try to stimulate deep centers in the brain to enhance alertness. So I think it's going to come around where neurosurgeons are more and more interested in that, but really it hasn't been the domain of neurosurgery thus far.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Katrina Furlick, author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Dr. Furlick, we're talking about how serious the content of your work can be, but talk about the humor that is used to help those in your field to cope. I like to expose
1: the culture of neurosurgery from an insider's perspective. And, and there is a lot of humor. In fact, as a resident, I, I remember other specialists would would say, you guys always look like you're having so much fun. Why is that? You're dealing with all sorts of death and destruction and terrible cases. But for some reason, we had a great com- camaraderie on our team in residency. And it, it does help you get through the day. And it's not the type of humor where we're directing it at the patient, for example. We're not cruel in that sense. It's more the black humor that that just makes light of the terrible situations that we have to deal with all the time. It just helps us get through. And I think it can be misunderstood if you're an outsider eavesdropping in on a conversation. But if you're an insider, you're understanding kind of the tension that goes on with dealing with brain disorders, and you understand why, why it helps you get through the day. So I, I tried to sensitively bring up some of the black humor that we deal with. And I was a little worried about that, but I think it worked out okay.
0: I think so. I think people reading could appreciate that it's it's situational. It may sound harsh sometimes, but understanding that it's meant for coping and it's meant for getting through. Right, exactly. On the more positive side regarding your profession, you are able to treat many of the most fascinating disorders using techniques that are constantly evolving.
1: That's true. And that's part of what attracts people to neurosurgery in the first place is the technology and uh, the fact that there's so much to learn and, and the research is, is so fascinating. It's a different neurosurgical disorders. So it's the feeling of a great frontier, kind of where, say, cardiac medicine was, and and it, and it is now. But finally, neurosurgery is catching up to treating the brain in electrical stimulation sorts of ways and new techniques for spinal instrumentation and new techniques for treating aneurysms. There's, there's a, whole, a whole new world of possibilities that weren't available even 10, 15 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. And because the brain is so complex, you are called in to deal with a much greater variety of disorders than specialist for any other organ. That's true. It's funny because for example,
1: one thing that is a bit difficult to get used to from residency then going into a practice is that you can't do everything in neurosurgery. It's such a vast field. Everything from brain surgery to peripheral nerve, you know, carpal tunnel surgery to spine surgery to carotid surgery on the neck. We we, we have such a huge spectrum that you can't be proficient in the entire spectrum. So you do as you go along end up limiting your practice to just the things that you see often and just the things that you know you'll be able to do well again and again and again. So you learn everything as a resident then you realize wait a minute I'm not going to see X Y and Z so I better not do X Y and Z and you start to tailor your practice accordingly.
0: You say in your book that you find beauty in the brain. Can you explain what you mean?
1: Oh definitely. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by pictures of the brain even before I, you know, before I became a neurosurgeon brain anatomy and was always a, a huge fan of Oliver Sacks, who wrote about the brain. But the, but there is a beauty in the brain, which I think is difficult for people to appreciate if you don't know much about the anatomy. I think people have this idea that it's just a big blob of, of mush. Really, it's incredibly intricate, and if you look at cross-sections and, and looking at the brain in various imaging ways... It's unbelievably intricate and complex, and the more you know about it, the more beautiful it gets.
0: Sometimes neurosurgery residents can become wary after dealing with severe neurological damage, forgetting to stay connected and attentive to cases. You tell a really touching story about your meeting with a boy with cerebral palsy.
1: That was one where I really had a huge respect for one of my pediatric neurosurgery mentors, and it was a case where I had to see several patients in a row in an office setting, in the hospital. My job was to quickly get in there, get the history, do a quick physical examination, and then present my findings to the attending. And obviously, I wanted to be efficient. I wanted to get the job done. I didn't want to dawdle too long on any one patient because I wouldn't get the job done. So I, I quickly entered a room. I saw uh, what looked like a teenage boy in a wheelchair, very worn out, appearing, you know, cachectic, very skinny, bony. Knowing that he had cerebral palsy, I basically almost discounted him in terms of getting the history and I immediately turned my attention to the family, to the to the parents and asked all my questions and got all the questions from the parents. And, you know, in the interest of interest of efficiency, I I just basically almost ignored the boy himself. Now when my attending came in, he was very slow, very methodical, he sat down before even saying a word, he just kind of surveyed the situation, looked at the boy, looked at the parents, and saw the boy's high school Ring, which was a huge high school ring that he was clearly very proud of, and looked the boy directly in the eye and and asked him when he graduated from high school. And this boy, to my surprise, was able to communicate via computer, was much more intelligent than I had ever imagined him to be. And I was obviously incredibly ashamed that I had overlooked him as a person. And it was just one of those lessons that made me realize that I can't be so quick to judge. And it was my attending who had been a lot more sensitive and thoughtful in that regard.
0: Let me ask, how do you believe professionals view neurosurgeons and how do neurosurgeons view other medical professionals in general?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I I can say one thing for sure is that my, my father is a general surgeon. And growing up, he would tell me, oh, well, different doctors have different personalities and neurosurgeons, they're all egomaniacs. They have the biggest egos and you know, almost in a slightly negative way, always, always joking. But when I Told him that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. That, that's when things got got pretty funny. And I never considered myself to be somebody who, you know, wore my ego on my sleeve. I was a little more quiet and reserved. But I always hark back to my my father's thinking that that neurosurgeons are egomaniacs. And to, to some degree, that is true because you do have to have a lot of confidence in, in any surgical specialty. And the funny thing is that I think neurosurgeons will sometimes, especially in training, think that other specialists are you know, quote, softer or don't work as hard or, and I have some sort of, you know, silly thing to say about other specialists. In reality, they're probably just jealous. They're jealous of the fact that the hours may not be as bad and and, uh, jealous of the fact that they may not have as many emergency situations, that sort of thing.
0: Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Katrina Furlick, clinical assistant professor at Yale University and author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Furlick. Great. Thank you so much. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.